I, I want to talk this morning about one of the important themes of Shavuot, which is death and resurrection. So many times the disciples heard Yeshua say that he had to die. He had to suffer and then die, and then he would rise again on the third day. And yet this was the absolutely most difficult idea for the disciples to embrace. And you can understand why. Messiah, according to, to the, the common Jewish understanding, is an anointed king who ushers in a kingdom. And the era of Messiah, as, as understood popularly by the Jewish people, comes in and changes everything. The lion and the lamb and the wolf, they can lie down together. Swords are beaten into plowshares. Nations aren't learning war uh, against other nations. There's a transformation of the whole world order in common Jewish understanding. And so the idea that what Messiah would bring would be accompanied with suffering... And with death, this was very difficult to embrace. It was hard for the disciples to embrace. In fact, when they would look in the scriptures in Tanakh, they couldn't even see it there. They could see the victory and the reign of Messiah, but they couldn't see the suffering of Messiah. They could see the end result, but they couldn't see the process. And it was only after Yeshua rose from the dead and regathered his disciples that they were now in a position where he could do a transformative work on their understanding, on the way they thought, the way they felt, how they processed things. And in the book of Luke, in the gospel of Luke, in the last chapter, it tells us that one of the last things Yeshua did is he opened up the mind and the understanding of his disciples so that they could comprehend the big picture of the Tanakh. Because prior to that, they read Tanakh in a certain way, and that's how they understood everything. So he took their foundational understanding, their existing understanding of Tanakh, and then he lifted it up to a higher level by opening up their minds to comprehend something more, to see the bigger picture, that there was a victory that comes after suffering. There is a victory that comes after death. And he was trying to show something by his own resurrection. You see, he rose from the dead and he returned where? To Jerusalem. And then he sought out disciples all over Israel. He did not act like a Messiah who had been rejected by the Jewish people. He acted like a Messiah who had suffered on behalf of the Jews. And came back to the Jews for the Jews and for the future of the Jewish people. He came back and he regathered his disciples. He opened up their minds, their understanding, and he then told them that what he had done was not enough. Now, you won't hear what I'm saying in these words in, in a Christian church, for instance, because often the cross is presented as enough. And in fact, the, the sacrifice of Yeshua on the cross is enough regarding sin, regarding the penalty for sin. But that was not all that Yeshua came for. And that's why the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of the good news, needs to be broadened in order to understand what Yeshua actually intended to accomplish. And he said to his disciples, who had their own narrow understanding 
of the scope of Messiah's work and the ways and means of Messiah. He said to them that now I have to leave you, but this time don't run away. Do you remember on the cross, almost no one was there with him. His disciples ran and hid. They they didn't know what to do. When he was buried, their hopes were buried. When, When he died, their sense of the future died because they were living in a normal human understanding of what death means. The normal human mind says that death is the end of things good. And Yeshua was coming in as a victorious king, as King Messiah, Melech Mashiach, who also was the suffering one. He suffered and he had victory. He didn't just suffer. And this is one of the reasons why in a Messianic congregation, you're not going to see a dead Jesus hanging on a cross. Because that only represents one aspect of what he did. But he rose from the dead. And he came back and he did more and he got his disciples ready. Can you understand how how powerful his resurrection was? Because it was so surprising. He had told them, I'm going to rise from the dead. And they said, sure, we don't believe it. It didn't fit in to what they expected. They did believe in the resurrection, especially those who came from a Pharisaical Jewish background. They believed even in a bodily resurrection. Those from the Sadducean background would have believed in a spiritual afterlife, but not a physical resurrection. But resurrection was a Jewish idea. It was understandable. The afterlife uh, depended on some kind of resurrection, some kind of rising up from the grave, some kind of life uh, after this life. And so they expected a resurrection, but they didn't expect his resurrection because nobody had died like he had died and been raised from the dead. He really died. He really died. And he really rose from the dead. And when he came back, it was very confusing, very unsettling, very encouraging, but disturbing. And it's not... It's not to be taken lightly that the word of Yeshua's resurrection came first to women who were ready to hear it. Because there are things that God wants to do that are hard for men to figure out. And men, you can understand this, when when we are in the womb, in the early weeks of our growing in our mother's womb, testosterone is released into our little bitty bodies and our brains are divided into two separate parts. And this enables us later on as men to think in certain ways and and process certain thoughts that are differently than women. Women don't have that testosterone bath, which some people have described as early masculine brain damage. And so their brain lobes stay connected, which means they can work at the same time. Both lobes, both sides of the brain can be working at the same time, which is why women can come to the right answer faster than men. Sorry, guys. 
But when you ask a woman, how does she know that? Often she can't explain it. Which, of course, enables a smug man to say, well, then you're not right. And exactly that kind of thing happened after the resurrection. After Yeshua rose from the dead, the women heard the message and they got it. And they didn't try to figure it out to explain it. They just intuitively grasped it as it was communicated to them. The guys, on the other hand, couldn't figure it out. And so they thought the women were hysterical. (laughs) I mean, that's how I read it. Yeah, the women are out of their mind. They think, you know, Yeshua's back. You know, you've got to be crazy. Well, he was back. So who was out of his mind? The guys. Yeah, listen. None of the guys said, it was us, it was us. We're all sitting back. Where are you going with this? If I admit any of this, is this going to get me into trouble later? If my wife hears me admit this, oh, man. You see, I've already worked these things out with my wife. In our 16th year? It only took 16 years. It took that long? Can you prove that? (laughs) But there there comes a point when you realize that God does not fit into your box and that he's not limited by your previous understandings, though the things that he's established as true, they are true. So it's not always that everything you know is wrong. It's just some things you know are wrong. And those are the things God will not allow to persevere in your life if you really want to grow in truth and in understanding. And so the, the, the resurrection of Yeshua changed understandings for the disciples. And they gathered together and, and Yeshua was saying to them, this time don't split up. Don't go away. Don't run. Stay together. And they did. So you see this remarkable transformation. When Yeshua opened up their mind, something more could happen too. They were able to stay together. Their hearts were open. Their minds were open, not just to the scriptures, but to one another. You see the interconnection? When you're close to each other, you'll be close to the scriptures. When you're open to the scriptures, you'll be open to each other. When you're open to the word of God, you'll be open to loving each other. When you're open to God, you'll be open to people. When you're open to people, you'll be open to God. You can't separate them. If you try to, you do harm to everything. And so they were open to God. They were open to new things. They were open to each other, and they stayed together. And Yeshua said, now I'm leaving. You stay here because there's more to be done. More to be done? I thought thought the resurrection accomplished everything. I thought the kingdom was coming. I thought sovereignty for Israel was coming. I thought that that the nations would no longer trample down on Jerusalem. When, Lord? Later. Not now. Now there's something else to happen. I go in order to send. 
I came for something, but there's more to be done, but this has to be done not on earth but in heaven. And Yeshua ascended and returned back into heaven and then sent the Holy Spirit. There was a time of waiting, not many days, but they waited together and the Holy Spirit came and fell upon the disciples and changed them and empowered them, and enabled them to become little sanctuaries, little holy places where God could reside. Yeshua knew that the Holy Spirit needed to take up a new kind of residence on the earth. He had to do it. The end of the temple was coming. And instead of God being limited in one place, he was going to be distributed all over. This is what the prophet Joel was talking about, as Peter understood it. So even before the temple was destroyed, God was preparing a habitation for himself. A dwelling place, not made by human hands. But a dwelling place made of living stones with a cornerstone, a chief stone who was Yeshua. And so you and I became became rocks, if you will, drawn from the quarry, the scriptures say, of Abraham, our father. And then God joined us together, but each one of us individually has an open place where the Holy Spirit can come and take up residence. And we can be filled and we can, we can know Torah from the inside out and from the outside in. Torah is no longer just external. It now becomes something that is internalized. Not just taken in, but God himself living inside of us teaches us from the inside. And leads us. It's so important to know this work of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to understand That at Shavuot, there is this theme of death and resurrection. There is this theme that that death precedes resurrection. Everybody wants to be resurrected, nobody wants to die. Everybody wants to go to heaven, nobody wants to die to get there. But the only way is through death. Now, death is filled with sorrow, is it not? Death causes great sorrows for those of us who lose a loved one. It is real. Yeshua stood outside of the grave of his, one of his best friends, Lazar, Lazarus. And he knew he was in the grave. And he knew he had died. And he knew the disappointment of everyone. And he entered into that suffering. He wept. Now, according to many wrong understandings, that would be an inappropriate response. Yeshua should get up and celebrate. Hallelujah. Resurrection. But Yeshua knew something about his friend Lazarus. He would rise from the dead and he was going to die again. Right? And so he cried his tears. Yeshua did. Genuine tears. Because in some way, death was still ruling and hadn't yet finally been vanquished. And he felt it. He didn't just say, hallelujah, come on out. 
He cried. He entered into the sorrows, the, the normal sorrows of death. He didn't stop there. Thank goodness. Many people get stuck in mourning. They get stuck in despair. And the, the Jewish tradition has a way of protecting us from that. It has to do with having defined periods for mourning where you must intensely mourn and even mourn together in public ways when you don't want to. When you'd rather just push down the feelings. And yet, we gather together. We don't just have a stiff upper lip. We gather together and we insist that together we will praise God even in the presence of death. And when we bury the dead, we each take a turn at the shovel, throwing in some dirt, not just leaving it for others, but doing it ourselves too, in order to experience the finality of it. And yet, death is not the end. Death is merely the end of one chapter. And then there's another. And this is the important part for us at Shavuot. When when we celebrate Shavuot, the book of Ruth is read. The book of Ruth is a book about death and how death seems like it's the end of everything. I'll read to you just some highlights from it. It came about in the days when the judges governed, there was a famine in the land. A certain man, Jewish man of Bethlehem and Judah, went to live in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. So four Jews go down to Moab because they can't even eat in Bethlehem. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, the names of his two sons were Machlon and Chilion, Ephratites of Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the land of Moab and they remained there. And remember, Moab was a, uh, an enemy tribe, if you will. They were the descendants of Lot. They were uh, born from incest. And they had allied themselves with Bilam against the Jewish people, trying to bring them, to bring the Jewish people into idolatry. Verse 3, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with their two sons. So immediately death surfaces. Death makes itself known. They were, they were escaping the death of famine. They come to Moab and there they don't have famine, they have food, but they have death. So now there are three Jews in Moab. They took for themselves these two sons, took Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years. And then both Machlon and Chilion died. So how many Jews are left? One Jew, one Jewish woman, one widow. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband, and she arose with her daughters-in-law, some time later that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So now she knows there's food. The famine is over. She should go back. This widow with nothing. No husband, no sons to provide for her. No one, no family to protect her. And yet she's living in a foreign land and she decides she's going to go back. She departs from the place where she was, 
and her two daughters-in-law go with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to the two daughters-in-law, You go return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. As you have dealt with the dead and with me, may the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Just let this be the end. Put this chapter of your life to an end. It's over, girls. It's over. She kissed them. And they all lifted up their voices and they wept together. And then they said to her, no, we will surely return with you to your people. And Naomi said, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I had said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait for them to be grown? Would you refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it's harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. She has experienced tremendous loss and death is ruling over her. There are two women, the daughters of Moab, who had married her two sons who are dead. And they are also, they're they're comfort, but they're a reminder that death has ruined her life. Destroyed her future. It's harder for me than for you. The hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Is this not the normal response to death? The hand of the Lord is against me. And they lifted up their voices and they wept again. You see, death is like this. The experience of death causes you just to agonize and uncontrollably express that emotion of sorrow. And it really does cause us to feel like everything is over and nothing is ahead. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and she departed, but Ruth clung to her. And then... Naomi said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, and pay attention to this, to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. I want you to understand what, what Naomi is saying. She's saying, I have my people, Israel, and my God, the God of Israel, and it really, it's all I've got, but it's not good for you. Look at the miserable life of suffering that I have had. Do you see the messianic message embedded in this? Naomi is saying to Ruth, you want to go with me? You want to serve my God? There's a life of suffering. Look at what I have. Look at what it's cost me. Isn't that what Yeshua said to his disciples? I must suffer. I must die and rise on the third day. No! Yes. Naomi is saying not these things as Messiah. She is saying these things as someone who is joined to the God of Israel and the people of Israel. Who is talking. She is talking to a woman who she doesn't even recognize. She knows that Ruth is her daughter-in-law. 
the widow of her son, but she doesn't know who Ruth is. She doesn't know because Ruth doesn't even know. But something's working inside of Ruth. That chazon, it's revelation, it's power, it's, it's something that doesn't conform to natural understanding. There is a messianic vision inside of her that looks at death differently. Not as the end, but the beginning of something. That looks at the victory of God differently. That looks at suffering differently. And, and she's offered an easy way out. Go back to your people and your gods. And she says, no. And then Ruth shows that she knows how to talk Jewish. You know, the worst possible thing you can do when a Jewish person challenges you about something is just uh, shrink. The best possible thing is to have normal chutzpah. Not arrogance, not pride, but the kind of chutzpah that can stand up for itself. And Ruth has it. And so she's not being dominated by her mother-in-law. She's got something rising up in her. She says, stop telling me what to do. This woman believes in miracles. Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And thus may the Lord do to me. And she says, thus may Hashem, thus may God, the God of Israel, in the most intimate form of God's name, may he do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Do you see? Ruth has something. This text is, is read in, in synagogues all over the world during Shavuot. Not just messianic synagogues. It is read for a reason, not just the timing of Shavuot, but there's a message in it, the victory of God. The extensive power of God. The, the enlargement of the good news. To touch others. And Ruth is ready to pay the price. She understands what it is. She's giving up her past for her understanding of the future. She's giving up her identity. She's giving up her people. She's giving up her system of worship for what is ahead. And you know what this means? What died looked like it was her husband, her Jewish husband. That's what it looked like that had died. But in fact, he was a, only one part of what died. Something else died, and that was her attachment to everything false that her people had taught her. It was her connection to her own people. That died. And even though her Jewish husband was dead, she was now part of the Jewish people. 
And it's not because someone said, you have fulfilled all the obligations of conversion to Judaism and you are now a Jew. It's because she fought her way in and responded to the calling of God. No one could do it for her. Others could resist her. And in fact, that is part of the Jewish tradition. Someone wants to join themselves to the Jewish people. You say, you don't want to go with us. You don't know how bad it can be. She chose a people to serve, a people to be with. She chose a life. She chose a God. And she showed something that she got freedom. That what did death do for her? It brought her real freedom. It didn't end her life. It brought her into something new because she didn't see death with a normal natural way. The normal natural mind. She saw something beyond. She was no longer bound. She wasn't limited. The past did not define her. The future opened up for her. And she made a choice that she understood had implications for the rest of her life, even to the point of death. It's not, oh, this sounds good. You've got food. Now let's go. I liked you anyway. I'll enjoy your company. No, she said, I'm going with you. You can't stop me. I'm going with your people. You can't stop me. I'm going with your God. He's the only one I want to be with. I don't want the God of my people. I want the God of the Jewish people. And who was Ruth? Ruth, unbeknownst to her mother-in-law, was the woman through whom King David would come. And she was the one through whom Messiah would come. No Ruth, no David, no Mashiach. But she lost everything. Yes, she did. But... Do you see something? History was turning. It found an, an axis to change direction. And it turned on this woman. It, it pivoted so that the will of God could be accomplished. So that the ultimate purposes of God could be accomplished. You see, that is how death works in God's ways. In our ways, death is... <laughs> It's only sorrow. It's only loss. But in God's ways, death presents new beginnings and new possibilities. Not just for the resurrection later, but for life in this world now. And there's something that you must know for sure that you will face death and that you will have the opportunity to have a new experience of life after death. You can't control how your loved ones die. You can't control when they die. You can determine whether you're going to be there if it's possible. Whether you're going to bring God's comfort if you can. You can determine that you're going to make the most out of impending death. That you will, that you will make right with anyone who you love before their death. And that you'll give them the chance to make right. You won't make it hard for them to be reconciled to you or for you to them. That you'll be grateful and so forth. But more than anything, you learn to see that there's something beyond the death. That there's life that you have that's beyond that.
There are two groups of people I want to I want to speak to right now. One are the people who are who married Jews, but you weren't Jewish yourself by birth. And I want you to understand that there is a kind of joining and a kind of calling that comes from that marriage. Whether you understood it when you got into it or not, you're beginning to understand it now, or maybe you already do. There's a special role for you to play, and it does require something that you choose the Jewish people as your own. Because if you don't, you can stay on the outside like Orpah did and return to your people when the time is right. And who knows what that will be. Some of you have done it already, and I want to just pray for you that you would have freedom and identity, that you would know who you are. You wouldn't be dependent on other people telling you who you are. I go with the Jewish people, Ruth says. Go home. Ruth knows who she is. Naomi doesn't. You've got to know who you are. If you're waiting on Jewish people to say, oh, we love you, you're a Jew. need more chutzpah than that. God may send you such Jewish people who say, I think of you as a Jew. You ought to. That's what I'm doing. If you want it more personal, tough. You may get it. You may not. But I'm telling you, there are ways that, God's wor- that God is at work. I've seen it happen and it defies understanding. It breaks your categories. I know, I know women who married Jews and gave birth to a kid, a boy, a child, a girl. And they've got a Jewish child that they're raising, so they are the mother of a Jewish child. And if their heart is right, they'll raise that child as a Jew before the Lord. And that makes them part of the Jewish people, right? A mother in Zion. But... It's their job to say it. I'm part of the Jewish people. Am I right? I'm just telling you the truth. I know people who are grandmothers of Jewish children. And sometimes it's not your ancestors who are Jewish. It's your descendants who are Jewish. Take up your place. So that's one group. I want to pray for you. It'll require the heart of Ruth and the price of Ruth. You have to pay that price. You don't want to pay the price? You don't have to. Go home. (laughs) Where would I go? (laughs) That's your problem. Go home. I want to stay here. Okay. Pay the price. No one can pay it for you. You pay it. It's your opportunity. It's not required of you. It's just your opportunity. see, we have this Jewish tradition that's discouraged people when they want to do something hard that's important. <laughs> it, has, it's this, it has this weird effect on people. It sorts them out. You make it too easy for people, everybody says, yes, I want it. And then not many do it. Yeshua understood this when he told the parable of the two sons who were told what to do. And one of them said, yeah, sure, Dad. I'll go work in the field. He thought about it. He's like, Work? You know, Maynard G. Krebs rose up in him. And only some of you understand Dobie Gillis. Work. 
And they decide, no, I'm not going to do it because work is required. The other one says, no, I'm not going to do it. And thinks better of it and actually does do it. And there's this long-standing Jewish understanding that you build encouragement not by telling people it's going to be easy. And not by saying everybody can do it, but by telling people that if it's important and it's worth it, it's hard. And not everybody's going to be successful, but if you put your heart into this, and you learn, and you get equipped, God will give you success that you can't grant yourself. There's a second group of people, and these are the ones who came out of Christian churches into the Messianic movement, who have a lingering anger with churches and Christianity. It's generally non-Jews who have this lingering anger. The Jews find it easier to forgive the churches and to forgive the Christians because to come to Messiah almost requires that we do that. And yet the Gentiles often who come to Messiah, even those who are married to Jews, often they've got a, there's like this lingering anger and hostility. Uh, Angry with the church, you know, why are, why are they so anti-Semitic? Why, why are they so committed to replacement theology? Why don't they get it? Why can't they read the scriptures and see them honestly for what they say? Why do they think that it was First Baptist of Jerusalem that got filled? <laughs> or the Assembly of God of Ephesus? That got the anointing. You know, why do they think like that? Why do they think that it was Pope Peter? What are they doing? So there are there are people who like agonize and they have made it not just a hobby, but their vocation to be angry. And I want to pray for you for freedom. Because as long as you're being reactive and critical and stewing over these things, you're stuck back there. You haven't moved out of Moab, if you will. I don't want to equate Christianity with the religion of the Moabites. I want to equate the experience of not knowing who you are and what you belong to. And I'm saying that when you know who you belong to, you know what you come out of. You don't spend the rest of your life negating it. Forever, Ruth was known as the Moabitess, and yet she wasn't of Moab any longer. That was her past. It was her genetic identity. And it was never denied. But it was never a limitation because she came out from under the curse of Moab and into the freedom of having joined herself with the God of Israel and the Jewish people. So some, some very sincere members of the Messianic movement are stuck. And one of the reasons they're stuck is they really want... Christian church approval. Their identity is not yet firm in Messiah and with the Jewish people. And they want those that they came out of to endorse, approve, and validate them. And so their identity is not firm in themselves and who they are. It's tied to their families of origin. And you can come out. But you gotta you gotta repent of the anger. You 
You want to get free from bitterness, take a position of freedom. The position of freedom in the new covenant is forgiveness. And I know some of you are just, you've got, you've got a list of faults that you spend a lot of time researching, working on. You know, like why, why, why do they still, you know, hate the Jews? You have friends who say, oh, you go to that church on Friday night. And you're saying, it's a synagogue. Why can't you say synagogue? You pray in the name of Yeshua and, and they are scandalized. And they're thinking, are you under the law? Do you believe in Jesus? And, and you think, you know, why do I have to spend my time explaining all these things to people? And if, you, if you're not right, you'll let those things define who you are. And you'll just be angry for no good reason. Because at any point, you can forgive and move on. And if you want to make it your vocation to be angry with the church, you should go back to the church and fight. You know, you can, the ultimate fighting champion, you can take on the Goliaths of the world. But what's the point? That's not the messianic calling. That's not the messianic vision. That's not what Ruth did. And that's not what the disciples of Yeshua did. They just took their own position in God and moved forward. And they knew who they were, and they knew what they were, and they knew who they were joined to and where they were going, and they went. And you can too. It'll set you free. So I want to pray right now. You see, I'm still on European time. Sandy and I were gone for a couple of weeks celebrating our anniversary, 33 years together. Wonderful years. I haven't changed my watch yet. So we're still on that time. But I want to pray for anyone who's married to a Jew. You don't have to stand up or anything. I just want to pray for you. You can sit down right where you are. Lord, let the fineness of this calling be revealed and the confidence of this calling be certain and the choice that you have given be clear that those who have joined themselves as husbands and wives to Jewish men and women who have become mothers or fathers to Jewish children or grandmothers or grandfathers to Jewish children, Let it be, Lord, that their choice is clear, that they know who they are, and that they know where they're going because of you. And let them be free so that they do do not define themselves simply by what others approve and disapprove of. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. Anybody who's angry with the church that just needs healing, this I think requires repentance so you can stand up (laughs) if you want to. If you don't want to, that's okay. But if you, oh, you're not, you're not really angry. 
You, Sandy dealt with this in 1995. We were doing an outreach in Odessa, and we were having tremendous difficulties. We had about 100 people on our team. And ultimately, somewhere between 45,000 and 60,000 people came to the festivals over a three-day period. You know, some of them came more than once, so we're not sure what the number of unique individuals was. But we had such resistance and such impotence. We couldn't get further. We couldn't, we couldn't go further in the spirit. And, and it was my responsibility to lead us in prayer and to lead us into a place of victory. And, you know, I'm praying like, God, what's the key? And he said, there are a lot of Gentiles here who are just angry and bitter with the church. And I'm not going to move until they repent. And I was a Jew. <laughs> Who am I to bring such a hard word to the people who we love so dearly? I guess I was the right one. So I got up and I just said, listen, this may be hard for some of you to hear, but it's actually a sin to carry this anger and this bitterness. And you're judging others uh, for their sins, but you got a log in your eye. And until you deal with it, you know, we're all stuck here. I mean, I said it in a pretty blunt way. You know, I took my time. I didn't say it in two sentences. I took about 10 minutes. But the point was, we can't go further until you get free. And Sandy was one who stood up. And another guy who was a big backer of what, you know, of the festivals, and he was married to a Jewish woman, and he stood up, and it was like these two people, you know, who were deeply involved, they weren't the only ones. They were holding us back. Now, (laughs) really, they were. I can talk bluntly like that. They were holding us back. They didn't want to hold us back, but they were. And to their credit, they stood up. And they did more than stand up because it wasn't a public demonstration. It was, it was something between them and God. And they said, God, I am not going to be held back or hold anyone other back, holding anyone else back by being bitter with the church. And let's move on. And to their credit, they moved on. And you know what? Immediately, mm-hmm. things opened up. Immediately, the spiritual atmosphere over Odessa, Ukraine, was changed. And immediately, the power and authority that we had as a group to operate in was transformed. And immediately, we began to have success. In, uh, in a few weeks, you will meet the rabbi of Odessa, Ukraine, Messianic congregation that was born out of that effort. You'll meet another rabbi. You've met him before. You're a Korshan who's from Nikolaev, who also served in Odessa. And you'll meet, you'll meet yet another rabbi from the Crimea. And you'll see victory coming through them. So give us, give us your best, ladies and gentlemen. If you've got anger, just say, I'm ready to put it behind me. I'm ready. If you do, just stand up. Don't be embarrassed. 
there's nothing to be embarrassed. You know, this is a call for freedom. It's not a call for criticism or judgment. Hallelujah. Lord, we stand here unashamed to confess our sin and our need for your help and our desire to get free and our confidence that you are the one who grants us freedom. Lord, I pray for these men and women who suffer with that anger. Would you now bring healing to their hearts and to their minds and allow them not to to dwell on or to be defined by those angers and that disappointment. Don't let any bitter root grow up and defile in them or through them. And I pray, I pray even more than that, that you will grant substantial identity in you and with your people. No longer looking for approval from outside, but, and no longer dependent on natural minds and natural thinking. Let something die of wrong understanding to something can be born again of new understanding. I pray in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Well, Sandy just wanted to stand with me. She's not guilty of this anymore. Anymore. <laughs> anymore. <laughs> She stood last night. <laughs> That's right. I was like, I'm not guilty today because last night I dealt with this. Let's close. Let's close with Aaron's blessing. I'm really looking for the day when we end on time. Lord, come quickly. Yivarechacha Adonai v'yishmarecha, Ya'era Adonai p'navelecha v'yichunecha, Yisa Adonai p'navelecha v'yasem lecha, Shalom. The Lord bless you, the Lord protect you, the Lord cause light to stream from his face towards you. The Lord favor you. The Lord lift up his face to you in recognition and approval. Mm. And the Lord grant you his Shalom. In the name of Yeshua, who is the Prince of Peace. Amen.